0: Amen. You may be seated. That was your first sermon. Uh, here comes another one. Uh, if you would, uh, please look in your bulletins. And if you uh, don't have a bulletin before you, if you take a copy of God's Word uh, and turn uh, to the book of 2 Samuel. We haven't been there in a, in a while, have we? Turn to the book of 2 Samuel. We, we return today after a long hiatus. We return to Second Samuel chapter six. Before the pandemic struck, we were right in the middle of Second Samuel chapter six. So I'm going to return there this morning. Uh, what's listed in your bulletin are verses sixteen through twenty-three. I'm actually going to go back and pick up the paragraph that comes before it, which begins with verse twelve. If you don't have a Bible in front of you and you just got the bulletin, please Give your attention to this one paragraph and then join me uh, reading uh, there as you have it in your bulletin. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord... Notice they're doing it right this time. The ark is not on a cart. They are carrying it as they have been commanded to do. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the horn. Verse 16. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, or Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window, and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And then he distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David. And you know, you can just picture the scene, can't you? Steam is coming out her ears. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house, to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you've spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be it to God. Have you ever underestimated the difficulty of something? I know you have. You, you, you look at something and it, and it seems like it's going to be easy, it's going to be a cakewalk. And, and, and so you give it a go. And you soon are saying to yourself, oh boy did i really underestimate that maybe it was at a carnival and you see all those games and they look easy and you see all those stuffed animals and you see that big old balloon and the darts and oh i can hit that balloon and i can i can win the stuffed animal or you see the, the hoop and, oh, I can, I can, I'm pretty good at basketball. I'm not, but maybe you're saying that. I'm pretty good and maybe I can get that in the hoop and I will win a prize. Or you got that hammer and, and you see that pad and you think, oh, I, I'm strong. Not me, maybe you. And I can swing that hammer and I can hit that pad and that block's gonna go up and it's gonna ding that bell and I'm gonna win that great prize. <laughs> and you underestimate uh, the scheming and conniving of carnies, or maybe it was a recipe and you've watched the video of the chef making that dish, it looks simple, it seems like a cinch, and then you get into it and oh my word, flowers everywhere and you know you got to have this done at this time, this done at that time, this done, and you're, you're running and, you, and it's, it's just a disaster. Maybe it's a jigsaw puzzle or a new game or a model and you jump in and a few hours later you're pulling your hair out. It looked so simple. Well, if you've had such an experience, then you can sympathize with me this morning. Before the pandemic started and as I was thinking ahead to this particular passage and planning to, to preach on this particular passage that next Sunday... I was looking at it, and and I naively thought, oh, this should be pretty easy to preach. This text is an easy one. Well, I I guess that what I thought this week, as I've studied again, has changed my mind. What have I gotten myself into? Here's what I mean. Here's my dilemma. You see, there's a sermon that I want to preach from this text. And it's a sermon that is true as far as it goes. And if you read the story superficially and you cut it off from the rest of Samuel, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, then the sermon to be preached is pretty straightforward. But then as I looked at the story in its context, set this passage, a story in the overall context of 1 and 2 Samuel, I realize that there's another sermon that I have to preach here. There's a sermon I want to preach. There's a sermon that I have to preach. And I have to preach it even though it's ugly. It's a very ugly story. And yet I can't ignore it. I can't set it aside. I can't overlook it. And yet if I just stop at that sermon... I'm left, and maybe you're left as well, despairing. And that's not the point of the passage, to leave you despairing. And then that made me realize that there's a sermon that I need to hear and that you need to hear. There's a sermon that I want to preach, and I'm going to preach it. There's a sermon that I've got to preach, and I'm going to preach it. And there's a sermon that I've got to hear and you've got to hear and I'm going to preach it. That makes three sermons. We better get at it. First sermon. The sermon I want to preach. Let me start this sermon with the punch, the punchline. Let me reverse the typical order. Let me go straight to the conclusion. Think about how David acted in this scene. Think about how he acts before the Lord. He is unconcerned with what other people think of him. And he's just giving himself full body unto the Lord and then think of what Michal thought of all that David is passionate before the Lord his focus is on the Lord Michal's is is on decorum and on what other people might be thinking and her disposition is cold as ice it's coldness of heart, right? That's pretty easy to see. And as you look at it and you say, oh, and if you think, okay, am I more like David or am I more like McCall? Do, do, do we muster the same sort of passion for God that we do for other things? Could I give myself something of this sense? Unto the Lord, as I do unto cheering for my favorite college team in that big game that they, they win, and you go crazy. You say that'll preach. And here's the punchline. Here's the, here's the conclusion of this sermon. Listen to this quote by a fellow by the name of W.G. Blakey. There are, he writes, doubtless times to be calm and times to be enthusiastic. But can it be right to give all of our coldness to Christ? And all of our enthusiasm to the world. Can it be right to give our indifference to Christ? Can it be right to give Christ our coldness and give unto, I don't get the opportunity that much, but to Georgia Tech, all my enthusiasm? Or to the orchestra that does the magnificent job, and at the conclusion of that you just you just gotta stand up on your feet and you just gotta gotta preach. By grace, after the shocking death of Uzzah, the right sense of fear that, that struck those who, like Uzzah, thought that they could manage God. after the trembling at the holiness of God, after leaving the the ark in the home of Obed-Edom, and Obed-Edom being blessed by the presence of the ark, not not struck dead, David realized that, that God wasn't, yes, He was not to be trifled with, and yet the symbolic presence of His holiness wasn't intended primarily to kill, but it was intended to bless. And when that when that struck him, and when he realized, that, I don't, I don't trifle with God. I tremble before His holy presence, but I don't need to run in fear because His holy presence is to be with me to bless me. That he then says, "Okay, it's time to get the ark," and he does. And he joins... Don't you see these two things that the world thinks, thinks are crazy? How can you bring these two things together? You see, he brings reverence and what? Joy together. And by grace, as you look at the story, he, he's acting in priestly ways. A king acting in priestly ways. That's interesting, isn't it? That's kind of foreshadowing someone who is to come. He acts in, in priestly ways. He wears a linen ephod. He directs probably the the sacrifices that need to be made. And he gives the benediction, does he not? He pronounces the blessing upon the people of God. That's beautiful. That's glorious. And by grace, and this is the thing you can't miss, he let it rip. He let it rip. He just gave himself everything he had unto the Lord. The God who speaks to the God who... Who saves, to the God who provides, to the God who reigns, and to the God who blesses. He worshiped, He lived, He acted with a full bodied faith. Do we? Do you? You see, that sermon will preach, and it just did. David, good, by grace. McCall, bad, cold. Right? Be like David, by grace, not like McCall. It's good so far as it goes, but there's more here, isn't there? there, there there's a sermon I have to preach. You remember the, the three most important rules for real estate? Location, location. Location. And you remember then maybe the three most important rules to biblical interpretation. Context Context Context. call. is cold and as angry and as disgusted with David as she is. She's no new character, is she? Yes, she seems to be utterly oblivious to living life before the face of God. And she seems to be utterly consumed with, concerned about image and decorum and getting it right and being honorable and following proper procedure and all the like. And in all that, it's easy to cast her as the exclusive villain of the story. As one not to emulate. And we shouldn't emulate her in her coldness, should we? We should beg of the Lord, please give me a warm heart for you, not a cold one. Yet you know the rest of the story, don't you? We don't have time this morning to go back and look at the passages. We've already read that concern McCall. But I'd encourage you to go back to 1 Samuel 18, to go back to 1 Samuel 19, to go back to 1 Samuel 25, and to go back to that heart-wrenching story of 2 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel 18, 1 Samuel 19, 1 Samuel 25, 2 Samuel 3. And when we go back and when we look at all those texts, this is the picture we get. We are told, as we're introduced to Michal, she loved David. We're never told David loved her. Let that sink in. We are told she risked her life for David to save him by letting him out the window as her daddy's goons are coming after him, at great risk and peril of her own life. We are told that while David was on the run from Saul and playing the warrior wherever, Separated from his wife, understandably. And yet, in that separation, what does he go and do? He marries Abigail and another woman. So much for committed faithfulness unto Michal. And we are told while David's out doing that, adding to his collection of wives... Daddy marries McCall off to another man. But then what? When Daddy is off the picture, and David has the chance, he makes Abner give Mikal back to him, ripping her from the arms of one who really did love her. just so he could add her back to his collection of wives. Let that sink in a bit. As one minister put it, the palace for McCall was at least an emotional prison. And now she's looking out a window again. It's a different window this time. And she's looking down now, not upon the man that she loves and would save, but upon a man she's disgusted with, and she's going to castigate. She's now, understandably, well, she'll be wrong in this, she's now going to look out at his actions, and she's going to take his legitimate an actually joyous devotion unto the Lord. And in her mind, she's going to twist that and she's going to turn it into, oh, what's David doing? He's just being lewd before all the servant girls. That's just like him. With his wandering eye. She was wrong. But if we're honest, can't we understand her? And then when she lets David have it, does he respond as a loving husband? David said, verse 21, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord and I will celebrate before the Lord. See, he could dish it out just as well. And he jabbed her right here. And then there's that last verse. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children, no child, to the day of her death. Could it be because he was, David was done with her? I'm done. I'm finished with you. Stay in the palace, but you're not going to see me in your bedroom. Now, was McCall guilty of being personally detached? from the sovereign God who blesses and whose ark was coming into Jerusalem and she should have been joyous and rejoicing over that? Was she culpable? Was she guilty of that personal detachment? Was she guilty of that lack of concern for the glory of God? Was she guilty of a coldness of heart to a vibrant and joyful faith? Sadly, I think the answer is yes. But dear ones... Who put hurdles before her? Who was partially to blame? Who helped her, who helped her imagination to think that he was a lewd hypocrite? Who failed to love her and nurture her as Christ loves and nurtures his church? His name's David. But get this, David, the very one who, despite that cruddiness, despite that depth of depravity, that David who was honestly, fittingly, commendably exercising a joyful faith, the one who was blessing his people, and yet jabbing his wife. Isn't that a scary thought? We can, by God's grace, be doing what is right, and yet we ourselves still culpable in part for the sinful responses of others. Can we recognize the sin and unbelief of others directed towards God and us? Yes, we can. But can we recognize that oftentimes we're complicit in it? That we've done things or not done things, we've said things or not said things that have factored in to the sinful choices and responses of others. Oh, dear ones, how easy it is to point the finger at others. How easy it is to jab back at others. But oh, what have our actions and our inactions, our words and our silence, what has all of ours done to help produce the sins? of others that sermon will preach too it just did how do we process it all here's how here's the third sermon here's the sermon Lee needs to hear and you need to hear as wonderful and as praiseworthy as King David was and letting it rip in celebrating before the lord in finding his dignity not in proper decorum and doing that which is right in everybody else's eyes but he found his dignity and honor in his humility and not being concerned about others but being concerned about god as wonderful as that is is as wonderful as his being lowly and a full bodied Servant of the Lord. He isn't the priestly king you need that I need. He isn't the priestly king he needed. Now there's another one. There's another priestly king who would proceed into this very same Jerusalem amidst feverish praise Celebration. Who would come in to this very same Jerusalem and who was everything that the ark symbolized? The living word, not just the tablets of stone found in the ark. The true Savior, Yeshua, God saves. Not just the staff of Moses held up over the Red Sea, to part the Red Sea for the Israelites to be saved. The real bread of life, not merely the jar of manna found in the ark. The real sovereign king, not just the symbol of the king's throne on earth. There is another priestly king... Who would be despised by onlookers? Onlookers who, in disgust and rage, would cry, Crucify Him, crucify him. Another one, another priestly king who, unlike David, would say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what They do. There's another one who would not merely strip down to a linen ephod, but who would be stripped completely naked to be hung upon a cross and shamed before the world. Suffering wrath. Instead of suffering or receiving blessing, suffering wrath to bless in order to bless the likes of David the likes of Lee and the likes of you if by grace you trust right now and all your days in Jesus and in Him alone for salvation. There's another who was buried, and on the third day rose again, so that sinner though you be, guilty of your own sins, complicit in the sins of others, might nevertheless be declared what? Not, say it, guilty. Not guilty. And be given new life, and be justified freely through faith, and by the Spirit be enabled to do what? May I put it this way? Enabled to let it rip. Enabled to give yourself body and soul unto the Lord, knowing that's the one, that's the audience that's the one we live for and we worship. That sermon will preach too. And it just did. And can you say, amen? amen? Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this passage, we recognize the coldness so times of our own lives. We' we'll root and cheer and rejoice and have fun about all manner of things and yet not have much enthusiasm for Christ. cold, indifferent. We, we, we come to a passage like this and we're convicted that too often when times we are only concerned about decorum and not really concerned about our heart attitudes. And, and we come to this and we recognize now, hopefully, Lord, that we are complicit in the sins of so many. We're guilty of a multitude of our own sins and yet we are also guilty in part for the hurdles that we have thrown in front of others. We come as needy people, but we come to the one who's good. We come to the one who, who has blessings in your hands, and we ask that they will be poured out upon us, that we would turn to Christ today, every single one of us today, Now and praise and glorify Him. Both here in this sanctuary with one another, but also as we go out into this world, as we now march out, not into Jerusalem, but into Huntersville, may we do so as those who love Christ. We pray it in His name. Amen.